Recovery Elevator, episode 97. I got to the point where I knew I was doing something wrong, but that was like in my conscious mind, and my unconscious mind was telling me, come on, we got to go have a drink. we got to have go, go have a drink. And that really hurt, the, the whole trying to get it going. Welcome to the Recovery Elevator Podcast. My name is Paul Churchill. Thank you so much for joining us. According to the Recovery Elevator sobriety tracker on my phone, I've been sober for 27 months and two days. On today's podcast, we've got Bubba. He's from Chicago, and he just hit a year of sobriety. Nice job, Bubba. Before we get any further, let's hear from Cafe RE. Before I got sober, I felt alone. It felt like I was the only one in the whole world who found it extremely difficult to stop drinking once I had started. With Cafe RE, I now know I'm not alone. In fact, there are so many people all around this world just like me. In Cafe RE, for $12 a month, I get access to a private, unsearchable Facebook group where I can connect with other like-minded individuals, meet with them face-to-face in several weekly live webinars and meetings, I can get paired with an accountability partner who has a similar sobriety date as mine, I can attend in-person meetups and attend exclusive sober trips to places like Costa Rica. If there's one thing I've learned in sobriety, it's that I can't do this alone. Go to recoveryelevator.com and use the promo code ELEVATOR for your first month free. Again, use the promo code ELEVATOR when signing up for your first month free. Okay, let's get started. The topic for today is cognitive dissonance and what the hell that means. But let me lead off with a quote. First, they ignore you. Then they laugh at you. Then they fight you. Then you win. Now, I thought this was Gandhi who said this quote, and I did some research just to make sure that I was right, and really nobody knows who said this quote. Gandhi said something similar, but it's actually not confirmed. I heard that quote a long time ago, and that's been my mantra in sobriety. If you're out there struggling to get sober, hell, struggling to stay sober, a life without alcohol is what you desperately want more than anything in the entire world. I know how that feels. I've been there. Tell yourself this quote. Let's both say this quote out loud. We're going to change you to me. First, they ignore me. Then they laugh at me. Then they'll fight me. Then I win. Now, I love this quote for many reasons. About 10 podcasts ago, I mentioned a life hack where you want to be the tortoise and not the hare. Life is measured one day at a time. Sobriety is measured one day at a time. We're moving through this thing slowly, patiently, and in the end, we'll find out who wins. Now, who are we saying this quote to? I want you to tell this quote to your addiction. For me, I'm talking to Gary. Gary is the guy, my addiction, who lies to me in my own voice and says, Yeah, Paul, a sea breeze? Let's do it. Everybody around this bar is having them. Why can't we? Well, Gary, I have made a decision to quit drinking. I will no longer need you chirping at me because I don't drink anymore, Gary. So Gary, remember when I first told you that I was going to stop drinking? That was after my panic attack in Spain. You basically ignored me because I was drinking pretty soon after that. In fact, Gary, you ignored me for a long time. There were countless mornings I woke up and said, okay, I am done drinking for the rest of my life, only to be drinking the same day and sometimes before noon. Yeah, Gary, you ignored me. And then you started to laugh at me really hard. Especially when I was a groomsman with a black eye for my best friend's wedding in 2008, because I may have gotten into an altercation with a bouncer at the bar the night before. Oh, Gary, you laughed hard and long. But then you saw something changed. I started to string a couple nights together. After a painful amount of failures with my decision to quit drinking, something stuck. I was getting smarter. I began to string a couple nights together. 
I began to believe. And Gary, you didn't like this. You started fighting me big time. You really started to convince me that I wasn't an alcoholic. In fact, Gary, remember that first AA meeting we went to? We came out and you were like, dude, Paul, did you hear all those stories of the drunkalog? You don't have a divorce. You've never been to prison. You don't have a DUI. Hell, you've got money in your bank account. There's no way you can be an alcoholic. Damn it, Gary, you got me good. You fought me for a long time. But guess what, Gary? In the end, I win. I win one day at a time with you, Gary. So what is cognitive dissonance? You've heard many times on this podcast, myself and others say, we are sick and tired of being sick and tired. It's the force that creates the exhaustion, the turmoil in your mind regarding alcohol. The definition of cognitive dissonance is the state of having inconsistent thoughts, beliefs, or attitudes, especially as relating to behavioral decisions and attitude change. I knew that I needed to stop drinking. However, my mind, Gary, kept telling me, hey, look, the Super Bowl, every commercial, there's Bud Light. Apparently, I'm un-American if I don't drink Budweiser. Oh, health benefits from drinking wine? Shoot, I'm missing out. That is the cognitive dissonance inside my brain. I want to quit drinking, but my mind won't let me. I think we all can agree it's exhausting. The term cognitive dissonance is often used to describe the feelings of discomfort that result from holding two conflicting beliefs. When there's a discrepancy between beliefs and behaviors, something's got to change in order to eliminate and resolve the dissonance. Back to that quote, Gary made me change. My mind shifted to avoid this cognitive dissonance. And Gary successfully had me drink night after night after night after night, even though I desperately wanted to quit. We all know how these inconsistent and conflicting beliefs can lead to extreme disharmony. And that's where the justification comes in. That's where hair of the dog comes in. And that's when we convince ourselves. We come up with these plans. We're going to say, okay, I got a hangover. And the best way that I can think of, I've had nine Tylenol already, is just to drink this away. You know what? We're just going to drink the odd days of the week. That's it. Your mind is trying to avoid the disharmony and put it back into sync. Did any of those plans work? Nope. For me, they didn't. Let's take a look of how this can happen in real life. So let's go with, uh, let's say, Tina, for example. She's 34 years old, works in a printing factory outside Milwaukee, has a cat named Stu, and her favorite band is Third Eye Blind because, for obvious reasons, it's a great band. Now Tina's boss has told her many times, Tina, look, we start work at 9 a.m. According to your timesheet, starting at 9 a.m. is a little too early for you. Tina, what can we do to make sure you get here not only at 9 a.m., but before 10 a.m.? Well, Tina knows the answer is to not be so hungover in the morning that you can get to work on time. So after the meeting with Tina's supervisor, she makes a decision to not drink anymore. However, later that evening, she finds herself not only drinking, but drunk. This is a perfect example of cognitive dissonance. And night after night after night of this is freaking exhausting. And that's when a lot of us, we get to the point where we're simply sick and tired of being sick and tired. Believe it or not, it's a great point to arrive at because it means you're ready to quit drinking. So what are some ways to avoid cognitive dissonance? Well, this is Recovery Elevator episode 97. This episode and the 96 previous episodes will lay out the framework. Go ahead and block off about 73 hours of your life and you'll get a pretty good idea of how to do it. Another way is hang out with people that have the supporting views that you do. Just like when we drank, we tend to roll with the crew that also like to drink. The opposite has to happen. Now, you don't have to change much to avoid these uncomfortable feelings of cognitive dissonance. You just have to change everything. Mm-hmm. 
Another way is to educate yourself. Now, knowledge is not power unless you do something with it, but go to a 12-step meeting. Read a book like This Naked Mind from Annie Grace. This was game-changing when I read it because it debunks a lot of the myths surrounding alcohol and lays it out for what it really is. It's a freaking poison. And if your mind is a lot like mine, you have an inner voice that continues to chirp well into sobriety. My mind, it just keeps on going. And that can be quite exhausting. It's really hard to be in the moment when my mind doesn't allow me to be in the moment. But I'm trying to take action, Recovery Elevator. The Recovery Elevator book of the month for our book club is called The Untethered Soul. I think the author is Michael Singer. It's all about the inner voice and ways to distance yourself from that inner voice and simply be with those emotions and negative thoughts. It's a pretty cool read. I highly recommend it. Okay, now let's hear from our interviewee, Bubba. Bubba, how are you? I'm doing good, Paul. How about yourself? I'm doing fantastic. And Bubba, before we get any further, I'm going to answer the question that I usually ask people. How long have you been sober? I'm going to tell everybody. It's been 366 days, one day longer than a year. Congratulations, Bubba. Why, thank you. I never Huge. thought it was going to happen. A lot of people don't get to this point. And so it doesn't happen for a lot of people. You should be proud. How are you feeling? I'm feeling good. I'm feeling really good. It's it's amazing. I had been drinking for so long that I didn't even realize how much it was actually affecting my life. And now with a year of sobriety under my belt, I'm starting to see things more clearly. I'm doing different things. And I'm actually getting much more into photography, which is something I used to do a lot of, but kind of pushed off to the side so that way I could drink more. Ah, the hobbies are coming back. And before we get any further, give listeners a little background about yourself, maybe where you're from, what you do for a living, how old are you, do you have a family, and what do you like to do for fun besides photography? Well, I just turned 50 last month, so I'm officially old. I was born and raised in the Chicago area. Let's see. Other than photography, I enjoy riding my Harley. I enjoy being outdoors, do a little bit of hunting. Other than that, I'm just pretty laid back. And listeners, I met Bubba in person at the Recovery Elevator Meetup, Cafe Ari Meetup in Chicago, mid-October, right before the, the Cubs won the World Series. And Bubba, you were a godsend, man. You were like just a map in our back pocket showing us all these, you know, the, the sights and sounds of the city, the city facts. Took us to Wrigley Field. I got a photo taken there and a you know, name drop said, oh, I was there in the World Series. I was there about 10 days previously to it. And Bubba, you told me that you've lost like 100 pounds in sobriety. Am I correct on that? Well, I've actually lost 46 in sobriety. And all total, I've lost 96 pounds. I had actually started my weight loss journey before I quit drinking. But I also knew that I wasn't going to get anywhere close to my goals if I continued to drink. Because I don't know about you, but when I drink, I eat. And I don't necessarily eat good for you things. And I eat a lot of things. It's sort of like, it's sort of like drinking beer for me. You know, one beer is good, 12 is better. You know, a few slices of pizza, a whole pizza. It, it all runs together. And I think this is a perfect example to show that the booze is usually the last thing to go. And it, it's not, you know, it's not our jobs. It's not this. And that's the problem. It, it's usually alcohol. And that's always the last thing to go. And I, I find it fitting that at the end, you're like, all right, the booze is gone. And then the weight just probably flew off, right? Yeah, it did come off quite quick after I eliminated that last obstacle to my weight loss. And this is one of the cool parts about this podcast, guys, is I met Bubba in person. He's in Chicago. I never would have met up 
with Bubba if it had not have been for this podcast. And so the reach of this thing is incredible. It's great to put faces to names. And I got to say thank you for being part of my recovery, Bubba. You've been in CAFE and an integral part of the community for a while. Um, yeah, let's let's jump into some of these questions here, Bubba. When when did you start to you know, start to realize that you maybe have a problem with alcohol? So you're, you're 50 now. Was it Was it last year, two years ago, a decade ago? When was that? No, actually, some of the earliest that I can remember, because I remember some of these thoughts as they, you know, they come back to you after a while. And I was kind of a late bloomer when I came out as being gay. I came out when I was 29. And in the back of my mind, I was kind of thinking, well, I'm not going to drink as much now because I don't have that all that stress and I'm not trying to hide that part of my life. And I thought that was going to be like a magic switch because, you know, we all think there's little things that can happen without any effort. And that was one of them. And then I continued drinking, obviously, for years after that. And then about, I'm going to say, four years ago, I really started to see that it was becoming a problem. And I started trying to, you know, moderate when I was drinking you know, okay, I'm only going to drink on weekends or I'm only going to have a few beers. I I started to limit how much beer I would keep in the house so that way I wouldn't have too many. I'd go, oh, well, if I only got a few, I'll only drink a few. Those those plans to moderate usually work out pretty well, right? Yeah, they were terrible because I I found myself drinking that six-pack and going, oh, well, now I need something else and having to go back out and get more. But it would be this New Year's, it would be three years ago, I stayed at home and I didn't drink and I bought myself non-alcoholic champagne for the evening and everything else. And I said, that was going to be it. I was going to quit drinking. And I was drinking again within three days. And there had been a lot of those in that like two year span, a lot of the, okay, this is it. I'm going to stop. And then I turned around and I'd make it two days, three days, maybe four days on the absolute top. And that was very rare. And then something would come up and I'd go, okay, well, I just, I'm going to go out drinking tonight, but then, you know, I'll start again tomorrow. And I did that repeatedly. So what do you think was different this time? What, what was your bottom? Well, I had just one of many days where I stayed out too, too long and then didn't make it to work. I went out with a friend. We started drinking at 6 o'clock in the morning on a train into downtown Chicago. and proceeded to drink and eat and have a good time all day long. And then I came back and logic would have told me to come home and go to bed. And I didn't, I decided that I needed to go out and visit friends. So I went and hit the first bar until it closed. And then I went to the next bar and next thing you know, it was way too late for me to even consider possibly going to work. And when I finally woke up the next morning, I said, you know what, this is it. This is done. I have to stop this now. And that's when I started my journey down this path. Did I hear you correctly saying you took a train at 6 a.m. and started drinking with your friends, or was that 6 p.m.? No, that was 6 a.m. Oh, okay, just double checking on that one. It, uh, I love how your you know, your your mind justifies. Like, well, yeah, I probably can't sleep now. Let's just keep going. Oh, I gotta go say hi to these friends. Let's let's, let's keep the party going. And and this disease is is progressive. Right, you know that it's six a.m. now, but probably five, ten years ago, it was noon, five p.m. And same thing happened with me. I just started to drink earlier and earlier in the day. It seemed in more days than not. And you told me about some of those rules that you had in place. 
And I, I think everybody has to go through these mini failures, which are extreme learning experiences. What are some in particular that, you know, you told yourself, like, damn it, like, I'm going to try this one more time. Can you think of, like, the last rule that you put in place before you, you started to get to the thing, like, all right, maybe I'm going to quit alcohol and stop putting these rules into place? Well, I'd say one of the last ones that I tried was the I'm not going to drink on school nights, a.k.a. I'm not going to drink Sunday through Thursday night. <laughs> yeah. I figured, you know, I'm going to I'm going to contain it just for the weekends. I'm going to go out Friday and Saturday, and that's going to satisfy my desire to drink, and everything's going to be wonderful again. And the wheels fell off that cart repeatedly over and over and over again as I tried to reset and start that over again and reset and start that over again. My desire for the alcohol, that little voice in the back of my head saying, it's okay to drink, had become so strong that it just overrode any common sense. And how exhausting was that? It, it got to be very exhausting because, you know, I got to the point where I, I knew I was doing something wrong, but that was like in my conscious mind and my unconscious mind was telling me, come on, we got to go have a drink. We got to have go, go have a drink. And that really hurt. The, the whole trying to get it going. And so let's back it up to the day when you started drinking at 6 a.m. You didn't make it to work, or did you say you went into work and was like, no more, I'm done? What happened that day? I, I, I didn't even make it to work the next day. I left the last bar sometime after midnight. So basically, I left the bar the next morning. And you gotta and... Be, you got to be work really early. I don't remember what you do. Actually, the, the, some... Okay, I do remember, um, but you got to work super early, right? Yeah, my my alarm goes off at four o'clock in the morning. It's like defense contracting stuff. Yeah, and I'm I'm in the plant at five. Okay, gotcha. And what what were you feeling that day? I was I was so hungover, it was unbelievable. And you know, before I had made the decision not to, my my solution to that would have been to drink more. You know, the the hair of the dog thing. Yeah. I can't tell you how many days I did that. I decided that oh. oh have a hangover, I'll just have a few more drinks, it'll go away. And it's actually a welcoming thought when you finally succumb to that you know, inner desire, oh, okay, well, I'm going to drink this hangover away. But what do you think was different on that day? I mean, that was 366 days ago. Before that, you said two or three days of sobriety linked together. That was rare. So what do you think was different this time? I think I was just, I just had enough. I just couldn't take it anymore. Like I said, I had been considering for almost two years at that point quitting and always had an excuse to not quit. And that was a just another day in a series of days that I didn't make it to work because I was too hungover. And I just decided that that was enough. And what did you do that day, the next day, within the first week, month to stay sober? How'd you do it? I listened to a lot of the Recovery Elevator podcast, actually. I, I, I like, completely overdosed on them. I was listening to them as I was working. I'd listened to them on the way home. And at the time, I don't know where you were at, 50, 60 at that point in time last year, I, like, started at episode one, and I just listened to everyone almost back-to-back, one after another. And that was what really kept me going for that first week. And how about after that first week? After that first week, I continued, and it was just a desire. You know, I, I finally had strung a week together 
And I told myself, okay, well, you've done a week. Let's try another week. And I just continued to do that and continued to use both the Recovery Elevator and I had found the other two podcasts. I can't think of the name of them now, Shane's and yeah, the Sober Guy podcast and that that other one. The Share podcast with Omar? Yeah, the Share, yeah. Mr. HP. Why I couldn't come up with those names. <laughs> yeah. No, that's, uh, that's awesome. And, and I know that the ism started to creep in probably around day three or four. The ism is the alcoholism, the incredible short memory. Uh, did you experience that, you know, about a week or even a couple of days in? You're like, you know what? Maybe it wasn't that bad. It's drinking 6 a.m. all day. Huh, that was kind of fun. What did you do when that happened? I just had to convince myself that I wasn't going to do it. And, you know, it wasn't just the little voice in my head telling me, oh, come on, we can go have a drink. It's not a problem. It was friends of mine going, hey, how come you're not at the bar? Where are you at? And I got a lot of that. And how do your friends take that when you're like, hey, guys, I'm not drinking? Or did you say like, hey, guys, I'm on a weight loss plan? What'd you tell them? The ones that were the worst, I just told them, hey, you know, I got I to gotta clean up for a little while. I got a doctor's appointment coming up. And for the most part, they bought that for the first oh, month, month and a half. But I'd say that a large majority of them at this point, we don't even really talk. Because if there's one thing I have learned is that the people sitting next to the bar with you are your friends until you're not sitting at the bar next to them. Listeners, that's a pretty big piece of advice right there. Actually, it's a fact, right? I mean, alcohol for me has been a huge filter in sobriety where I now, the people that I hang out with are my true friends. And my drinking friends, well, they never really my friends in the first place. They were just, you know, occupying space on the stool next to me. And, and we're friends on Facebook, Bubba. You're pretty open about a lot of things. And how good does it feel to be, one, open ab about being gay, and number two, open about recovery? You know, it feels fantastic. And I think that's, you know, we talk about basically having checks and balances and what we do to stay sober and the accountability factor. And to me, some of that is the accountability because, my close friends, my family, everybody else, they're all on Facebook and they all see what I'm doing. So it wasn't a question, even at the holidays and that of, hey, you want to drink? They all knew ahead of time that I wasn't drinking. And I, and I think that's actually helped because you don't have those awkward, you go to a family party and everybody's like, oh, come on, have a drink. Come on, have a drink. Because as a good drinker, and everybody has known you as a good drinker for a long time. If they see you without a drink, they're all like, well, what's wrong? How come you're not drinking? And it's helped avoid a lot of that. And listeners, that's, I think, 97 straight podcasts where the word accountability said. Yeah, that uh, that word might have some importance to it. And how, how important has accountability been just in recovery? You know, I think it's an important piece. And it's important for me to be accountable to myself. But it's also important to be accountable to my friends because my friends know that I'm doing this. And I think there's a lot of them that would look at me and go, what are you doing with a drink if they were seeing you with one at this point in time? Now, I want to touch up upon you know, the coming out of the closet at age 29. And, and David, I'm sorry to let you know, in terminal uniqueness, you are not the first person to come out in recovery and come out as gay. I think you're like the fourth or the fifth one. But one really surprising statement that has emerged from all of them, you would be the fifth if you agree, is that 
coming out of the closet as gay was much easier than coming out of the closet as an alcoholic. What was your experience with this? Well, I think there was surprise in both cases. People were equally surprised. I would say that coming out of the closet as an alcoholic was a lot more challenging for a lot of people because even though they knew that I was a, a good drinker, nobody looked at me as somebody that had a problem because I didn't have those stereotypical problems or issues that caused a lot of people to quit. You know, I, I've been very fortunate. I somehow, and I couldn't even tell you how, managed not to get any DUIs. I managed not to lose a job, which a lot of my friends have. Well, I got and, a pretty good idea about the DUIs. Chicago's got a great rail system. <laughs> oh, yeah. And, and that's an important tool, by the way, to yeah. avoid those things, as long as you're smart enough to use it. Yeah. But yeah. since I didn't show any of those, what would be, I guess, considered normal things that would cause people to quit drinking, people looked and they were like, well, yeah, no, you don't have a problem. You just, you know, you just drink socially and the whole bit. But I knew that I had a problem, and that was the important thing. And when we were in Chicago, we had kind of a roundtable session with all the attendees of that meetup. And you mentioned the relationship with your grandma that I found just fascinating. And I think, you know, this disease, it's environmental, it's genetic, it's very complex. But I think that had, it sounded like a painful experience with your grandma and, and, and maybe which led to why you drank at times. Can you explain more about that? Well, my grandmother and I never really had a good relationship, and my mother is a single child, so we spent many a Sunday nights over there for dinner. And before I was old enough to drink legally, we would go over there, and I would go through these dinners, and it just it was a horrible experience for me. And I couldn't wait to get out of there, so that way I could get out and go have a drink someplace. And then as I got older and I was able to drink, it was, okay, I'm drinking while I'm there. And then I'm drinking again after I'd leave. And it just, it was, it was definitely something that spurred me to drink. It was not, it was not the complete and total issue, but there was definitely, I was self-medicating for the pain for lack of better ways to describe it. And the pain that the way your grandma made you feel? Yeah, my grandmother had an incredible ability to make you feel horrible. You know, a prime example would be we'd be sitting there eating dinner and she'd say, oh, hey, here, finish this up, make it a good day tomorrow. And she'd be like piling food on your plate going, oh, finish this, finish that. And then after dinner, she'd sit there and she'd go, no wonder why you're so fat. Look at all you ate. There, there was a lot of little constant digs like that that just, they were intolerable. And did this, I, I can't remember about the conversation we had in Chicago, but did it reach a climax at some point or did you guys have a conversation about this? No, I just, I tried to avoid being with her, which then became issues with other parts of the family. And it just, it, the whole situation was just bad. I got it now though. Yeah. The theme of the, the theme of the meetup was lean in and let go. And this was one of the big things that you're learning to let go of those negative emotions, those negative feelings that yeah, genetics plays a huge role in this, but we've all got that nagging emotional pain from something in our life um, that we need to let go of, whether it's big or small. And, and you decided to let go of that, right? Oh yeah, I had to. It took a while, but 
you know, you got to put everything to the side. And Bubba, what does your recovery portfolio consist of today? Walk us through a day in the life of Bubba. Well, pretty much so. I keep myself busy. I've got a good group of friends. I, I obviously, I, I get up in the morning, I go to work, I work out every day. Before work, I get an hour in, go to work, do my things, come home, eat, have coffee with my friends, watch a little TV, and uh, crash most of the days. Not a real exciting life, but it used to be get up, go to work, come home, go to the bar. You know, it's, I mean, to me, it's a sober life. Any sober life is a hell of a lot more exciting than my life when I was drinking. Um, but what do you do in the daytime to, you know, the affirmations? For example, if I go more than a couple of days without at least connecting via text, via coffee, via phone with a couple of alcoholics, you know, it's only a matter of time before my addiction named Gary will convince me, start chirping at me in my own voice inside my head, and, and then, boom, before I know it, I'm drinking. Well, you know, Paul, I just about weekly, sometimes I run a little bit behind, I listen to the Recovery Elevator podcast, and being part of the RE Cafe, I really, I utilize a lot of the things that people talk about in there. You know, people talk about their concerns and how they handle it, and even though I don't always comment on things, I'll see somebody post a question, and I'll go through and I will read it, and I'll see what everybody's opinion is and how they handle the different situations. And, and I think that helps a lot, too, at least for me anyway. Even when I go a couple of days without being active in, in Cafe RE, what it does is it tells me I'm not alone because alcohol, it, it put me on a planet far, far from the one I'm on right now. I felt like I was the only person in the entire world. But, yeah, even though I don't comment on it, I read a lot of those posts, and I say, you know what? I am having a bad day, but that's okay because this person over there is too, but this is what they're doing about it. And we work collectively as a group to move forward in sobriety. And Bubba, we have reached the rapid fire round. If you could answer these questions within 30 to 60 seconds, that would be great. Are you ready? All right, let's do it. <laughs> Love it. Bubba, what was your worst memory from drinking? Well, Paul, there was a lot of those, but I'd have to say the Waking up in my lazy boy covered in beer repeatedly was probably some of my worst memories in drinking. Yeah, that would be nice if beer smelled like Ralph Lauren cologne, but it, it doesn't. It just doesn't. Nope. Uh, no, it heard, doesn't. And Bubba, we've all heard of the aha moment. Did you ever have an oh shit moment indicating, oh man, I can't control my drinking? Oh, I probably had several of those, but it usually started the next morning when I woke up and went, Oh, shit, I drank way too much last night. Yep, I had about 100,000 of those ones. And next question, Bubba, what's your favorite resource in recovery besides the podcasts and maybe Cafe Ari? Well, they would be the number one, actually. And I have tried and I'm still continuing to integrate a little of AA into my recovery portfolio, although I haven't necessarily found a home group. I do enjoy going to meetings from time to time and meeting other people to have that connection with them. Gotcha. I love it. And then what's your plan in sobriety moving forward? How do you get day 367, 368, and maybe day 1,000? Oh, I can't wait for that day 1,000. That would be really nice. You know, I'm just going to continue to do what I do and try to, you know, bring more things into my life and do things a little bit different. I'm doing some more charity work. I'm trying to be helpful. 
and just move on. Now, Bubba, you've been sober over a year, which means you've done some things that you really didn't want to do. You've probably listened to some advice you didn't want to listen to. What's a piece of advice that stuck with you? Well, one of the things that I had heard actually before from a friend of mine that had gone through several different recovery programs, he told me, he said, the counselor that he had worked with said, hey, you are the only one that can force you not to drink every day. And if you need to, turn around, slap yourself in the back of the head and remind yourself that you're not going to drink that day. And I can tell you, I've had to do that a few times. That's the new one to me. I like it, though. Yeah. And then before we depart, you know, what guidance can you give to somebody who's thinking about quitting drinking or they've been sober for two, three days? Well, for somebody that's considering it or has been doing it for a few days, I'd say stick with it. It does get better because as we know, those first 72 hours to a week can be a little bit rough. But in the long term, things that you don't even know that are wrong now will correct themselves. Give me an example of that. And I agree 100% with you, but I'm curious to see what you, if you have an example of that. Well, like myself, I had no clue how much money I was spending on alcohol and how much it was impacting my ability to pay my bills. And now that I'm not spending all that money, I'm actually paying my bills and have a little bit of money left over at the end of the month. Yeah, money is everything. I was, it makes things a lot easier. Yep. And when I was drinking, I had no clue what I was spending. And Bubba, before we depart, give listeners your own customized You Might Be an Alcoholic if line. Well, I'm going to go with You Might Be an Alcoholic if you slam six beers before you go to the bar because you don't want to have to wait for a drink when you get there. <laughs> I love it. I know a lot of us can relate to that. Unless that's you listening right now, telling yourself you're different, right? You made it 30, 30 minutes into this interview and you're telling yourself you're different. That's okay. Not a problem. That would be called terminal uniqueness. Bubba, thank you so much for joining me and helping me stay sober. I really hope to see you in Bozeman at the retreat on August 24th, August 27th. Thank you so much for joining us, Bubba. And I'm hopeful to be there because I had a great time at Chicago and I think the Bozeman rally will be fantastic. Love it. It's going to be a great time. Thanks, Bubba. You're welcome. Okay, bear with me for a second here, Recovery Elevator. So you wake up one day and you realize you're a pigeon. Yep, you got feathers, you got wings. Oftentimes, places that look like a great perch are covered in broken glass or spikes. Nobody really seems to want you around. You've been trying a long time not to be a pigeon. In fact, that one guy, Daryl, he called you a rat with wings the other night at the bar. What a dick. Now to clarify, you didn't go from being a falcon to a pigeon. You went from, let's say, a squirrel to a pigeon. All you want to be is a squirrel again. You see those guys being all nimble-like on the pine logs in the forest? You can dash up a tree at any sign of danger. But now, you're a dove. You tell yourself, God dang it, I'm a dove. So there you are. You're a dove, walking around all mopey-dopey in the plaza in Rome. You're just jumping along on three toes. Yep, you only got three toes now. That sucks also. But wait a second. Something changes in your mind. You're like, okay, I'm a dove. Now what? You look over, there's a group of other doves. They're not even working for their food. There's people throwing seeds at them. Man, these things on my back are slightly cumbersome. What are they for? Oh wait, they're wings. Let's go ahead and try them out. You start to fly. You say, whoa, 
Rome looks pretty cool from above. Maybe being a dove isn't so bad. Okay, what I'm trying to do, Recovery Elevator, if you're still with me here, is draw an analogy of what it was like when I was an alcoholic, or first realized I was an alcoholic. I was focusing on what I couldn't do instead of what I could do. As soon as I started to spread my wings and really look at the new opportunities in front of me, life became pretty cool again. In fact, if you want to get sober, you've got a tremendous opportunity to change the direction of your life. I highly recommend you take it. Yeah, I'm not too sure if that analogy worked. They can't all be home run hitters recovery elevator. I haven't mentioned this in a while, but we do still have the recovery elevator forum. This is separate than Cafe RE. Go to the homepage recoveryelevator.com and the very bottom in the footer, there's a link to the forum. It is a private forum. You do need a username and password to join, but it is free and there's some pretty cool conversation taking place. So recovery elevator, we took the elevator down. We got to take the stairs back up. We can do this.